hopefully Wednesday you celebrated Valentine's Day and the people you love in your life. Robin and I celebrated at Village Inn. Yes. yes, buddy. It doesn't get any better than that. And it's Free Pie Day on Wednesday. So it was like a two for one on uh, Wednesday. But uh, I'm grateful for her. Also, Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Many of you came out to Oasis and received the ashes to start off the Lenten season, which we'll talk more about. But unfortunately, on Wednesday, we also experienced in our world uh, another tragedy uh, that we really should not ignore this morning, and we need to say something about. Uh, Again, uh, as has happened too often in our world, we had a mass shooting down in South Florida. Uh, Just uh, utter devastation. Uh, I don't know any other way to describe it. Uh, You know, having lost a child ourselves, uh, Robin and I were just uh, heartbroken to imagine what these parents are going through certainly under the circumstance even worse. It's catastrophic, friends. That's all you can say about losing uh, a loved one and a child. And uh, today we just um, pray for them. We sincerely, our hearts and our thoughts and our prayers are with them. We pray peace and comfort into their hearts. And um, we also look inside of ourselves and we ask, what can we do? Uh, to make our world uh, not only a safer place, but a place of love, uh, a place where we are sober and vigilant and diligent, uh, where we are involved in each other's lives, where we can uh, look and we can speak up. And uh, I don't know the answer to all these questions being asked by the media and by government uh, officials and even by the kids themselves. I I don't know all the answers, but I do know that um, we need to love and we need to keep asking those questions until we find an answer. So today we remember them and we continue to pray for them. Will you do that in the weeks ahead and uh, be diligent about that? Well, we're launching into a series today called Words to Lent By. And I want us to understand kind of what our goal is at the beginning of the series. Our primary goal, our big goal, is that we are going to fully engage in the season of Lent as we head toward Easter Sunday, which interestingly enough is on April Fool's this year. Historically, as you may know, Lent is the Christian season of preparation uh, before Easter. Uh, The Lenten season is a time when many Christians observe a period of of repentance and moderation, of self-denial, and as Robbie said, kind of a spiritual uh, discipline. And the purpose is to set aside time for reflection on Jesus, Uh, about his suffering, his sacrifice, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And during these next six weeks of self-examination, Christians who observe Lent typically will make a commitment to give up something many times. Uh, A habit, uh, smoking, watching TV, swearing, uh, certain foods or drinks, sweets, chocolates, coffee, things of that nature. And Lent actually begins, uh, as we said this past Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, and the significance of it is based on two episodes of spiritual testing. One of them, uh, Zach read about in the book of Deuteronomy, when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The second one uh, has to do with the temptations of Jesus after he spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness Uh, that episode that is recorded in several of the Gospels. So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to kind of prepare our hearts for the Easter season during this time called Lent. 
But we also have another kind of big goal for this series, and I'm going to explain it this week, uh, this way. A few weeks ago, Robin and I went to a wedding, uh, and after the ceremony, we had to go downtown in downtown Lakeland for the reception. Wonderful wedding, beautiful reception. But as some of you know, it can be a little challenging sometimes to get parking in downtown Lakeland. So I kind of circled the block. I let Robin out, and I circled the block a couple times. And I saw a guy leaving, getting into his car. Uh, and I stopped to wait for him to leave so I could parallel park where he was at. And then this guy just sat there in his car. The engine was running. I, I knew, I figured he was going to leave. But he kept adjusting the mirror and he kept looking at his phone. I guess he turned on the radio. He kind of settled in. And the thought began to occur to me that this guy is deliberately making me wait for this parking space. And the thought occurred to me also that I needed to help him out. <laughs> so I gave him a little toot of the horn to let him know that I was waiting as if to say, hey, are you leaving or are you planning to live here the rest of your life? And as I did, he put down the window, he stuck out his uh, head, and he waved and he said, Hey, Pastor Phil, I saw you at the ceremony, you coming to the reception? He apparently knew me. I didn't recognize him, honestly, but I did think to myself, Yeah, if you'll get out of my parking space, I'll be glad to. As it turned out, I circled the block. And I found another space because apparently he decided to stay there. Now, how many of you have ever had that happen? Where you were waiting on a space and it seems like nobody will make space for you. I'm not making this up. In the Journal of Applied Social Psychology, someone did a study of hundreds of drivers. And they found out that we actually take longer to leave a parking space if we know someone is waiting to take that space than if nobody is waiting at all. There's something inside of us that's a little perverse that says, this is my space. We'll actually make ourselves wait longer to leave somewhere just to keep somebody else from getting my space. If you've ever been in a hurry to pick up kids or late for an appointment and you give that little honk, we actually make people wait longer, four times longer. Now, this is such a common instinct that sociologists and psychologists now have a name for it. It's called territorialism. It happens in other areas. Go to a restaurant. The longer the line of people waiting for a table, they've proven the more crowded the restaurant, the longer people linger at their table as if to say, this is my space. I don't want to make space for you. Now, nowhere is this issue and this problem any bigger than when it comes to making space for God. There's this weird, if we can just say this perverse little thing inside of us, even if we don't plan it, even if it's not deliberate, it's like we have so much going on in our lives, there's so much happening, and we so jealously guard the contours and the boundaries of our life so much so I don't have time to think about God, I don't have time to think about His character, and his blessings and his goodness in my life. I don't have time to pray at a deep level or examine the condition of my character. I don't have the time to put into what's needed to build good friendships or to serve or to give or to volunteer. So that's going to be the second goal of this series, so we're clear. 
We're going to seek to make space for God in our lives during this Lenten season. Now to do that, we're going to focus on about six words during this series. You see these words around the stage. They're here for a reason. Each of these words, friends, has the power to change your life if you will choose to lent by it during this season. If you will choose, these words can help you make space for God. We're going to start today with a very familiar word, a word that really needs no introduction, a word that we have known about and we have absolutely loved since we were this small. So everybody knows the word for today, right? <laughs> yeah. We're going to start today with this word. It is an important word because this word can liberate you. It can free you. It can actually help you to set boundaries. As you can see, there was a time in your life when you coveted this word. You said this word recreationally, joyfully, gleefully. Clean your room. Eat your peas. Share your toys. No. Then over time, something interesting happens. You learn that people like you better if you say yes than if you say no. Now, we don't like it when people say no, and they don't like it when we do. So what happens is over time, we find ways to say yes that create enormous problems in our life. We say yes to bosses and yes to schedules and yes to meetings and yes to obligations and yes to burdens and yes to stuff we're going to buy that we don't really even need. And we say yes to people we barely know and we don't even like. <laughs> then eventually our lives are crammed full. They're decent, respectable, exhausting, fatiguing, resent-filled, godless little lives. What we desperately need is this word. No. There's an author, Shauna Nyquist, and she writes about this. This is part of what she says. And so if you, like me, have said too many yeses and found that all that hopeful, exciting, wide-open intention has actually left you scraped raw and empty, the word that can change everything is no. I know. I don't like it either. Yes is fun and sparkly and printed on tote bags. No? What if you saw someone wearing a sweatshirt that just said no? I do not want to sit next to that bundle of fun. But no became the scalpel I wielded as I remade my life. During this series, and particularly today, God wants to give you a scalpel to remake your life. To make space for him. Because here's the thing about our God. He, generally speaking, won't force himself into your life. God will generally not honk his horn over and over. God is just there. The Bible, among other things, friends, is a book filled with some amazing no's. Some wonderful, glorious no's. There's a guy named Joseph, and he has a lot of reasons to have self-pity, to think that he deserves some kind of pleasure, and he's invited into a relationship. He knew that would mess up his life. But Joseph knows his identity and he knows his mission in life. So Joseph can say, no. There are three young men. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their lives turned out, to be honest with you, a little disappointing to them. They're invited to worship an idol. 
In fact, we're all invited to worship idols. But they know their identity, they know who they are, and they know what they're supposed to be doing, they know their mission, so they say no. One of the great stories involves a leader named Nehemiah. He was in Jerusalem helping to rebuild this great city of God. Let me say this to you this morning. Anytime you try to do something great for God, and it doesn't have to be big great, it could be like trying to be a really good parent or trying to volunteer and serve and help people. Anytime you try doing something good in this world for God, there's going to be forces that will try to distract you and to pull you away from God wants you to do. They did to Nehemiah. All they did was say, hey, Nehemiah, can we meet with you? They just want to kind of interrupt him and stop him on his mission. Now, it seems like a reasonable request. Most of us may have said, hey, I can use a break. I'll just go meet with him. But I want you to remember this phrase, this sentence that Nehemiah speaks. He says, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop? Why leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. No, 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 and no. And here's the principle. If you are clear on your identity, and you are clear on your mission, you can get clear in your life when you should say yes and when you should say no. But you have to know who you are. This is what we have to understand about this Lenten season. A lot of people, when they hear the word Lent, if they know anything about it at all, they associate it always with giving up something. But they don't really know why they're giving it up. In 2015, hundreds of thousands of people went on Twitter and revealed what they were giving up for Lent. Anybody want to guess what the number one object was that people gave up for Lent? That's right. The same as Robbie. Hopefully they made it longer than Robbie did. (laughs) Chocolate. People say, I'm going to suffer for Jesus by giving up chocolate. The second was alcohol. And the third, interestingly enough, was tweeting. People gave up tweeting for Lent, which for some people is a huge sacrifice. I find it ironic that they're tweeting about giving up tweeting for Lent. And people will sometimes give up stuff, and they get this idea that God is into deprivation. That he loves it when we just deprive ourselves of stuff. They don't really understand why they're doing it, and they miss, miss, listen, the no that is the scalpel to wield in order to remake your life. See, my life is crammed full of stuff, burdens and obligations, and then those things turn into things called resentment and busyness and hurry, and there's no space for God, there's no space to be alive, there's no, listen, there's no space just to enjoy this wonderful word called no, it is such a great gift. And the primary reason that we say no, and the reason it's such a wonderful gift, friends, is that the reason that we say no to a lesser good is so that we can say yes to a greater good. This is one of the reasons that we love the word yes so much. We're going to look at that word, by the way, next week. We're going to talk about the great yes that God has for you and the great yes that you can say back to God. I'll be talking about that next week. But for right now, we can't start with yes because here's the deal. When we cram our lives so full of stuff and we get so burdened 
If we came and said, listen, I want you to add one more activity on top of what you're already doing, it just kind of feels like it's just another to-do list that's crushing me. So we're going to start with emptying our lives and freeing ourselves up. And the great news is there is a man who lived this earth, and this guy mastered the art of no. He said the most powerful creative no's that have ever been said. His name is Jesus, and his ministry, interestingly enough, does not start out with a great yes. It starts out with three resounding no's. What I want to do here is just walk very quickly through the temptations of Jesus when he was in the wilderness and what those temptations look like for me and you today as we try to say no in our lives. I'm going to give you a little practice with each one of these that you can use during the Lenten season to kind of embed it into your life. We start with Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. And as he comes out out of the water, many of you remember this, his identity is affirmed by his father. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's his identity. He is God's son, God's child. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, then left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. This is the 40-day period that we associate with Lent. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And when he says it's written, he's talking about the scriptures. He's going to quote the scriptures during this entire episode. And there's a really important context to this bread alone statement that you need to know. It is written in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Moses was at the uh, end of his life. He's reviewing and kind of reflecting on what God has done for him and the Israelites. And so he says this. He says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel had been taught that man lives by bread alone. Now, where did Israel come from? Israel came from slavery in Egypt. I was reading a really interesting Old Testament theologian, and he noted that when they were in Egypt... Their job was to build storehouses to store grain for bread. So naturally, they were taught in Egypt, you can never trust that there will be enough in your life. You always need to make sure that you have more and more and more. And they were also taught in Egypt that it's okay to enslave people to cause them to live in miserable, horrible conditions as long as you can have more. So God leads them into the wilderness to teach them a spiritual and economic lesson that would go really, really deep into their hearts. God's message was, listen, no, I will provide for you. If you will trust me, I will provide for you. In fact, the rabbis used to say that no one could receive the Torah, the word of God, who had not received manna, the care of God, the love of God. So here's the first temptation that Jesus is facing and we face. Here's the first one. You are what you have. Your identity is what you have. 
Friends, every day the system of this world will try to convince you and me that you are what you have, that you should live by bread alone. Now you understand when it's talking about bread, it's not talking about the stuff we make toast out of and the stuff that we hope they bring at Grillsmith really quick, okay? Bread is a symbol for life at the level of acquisition of material goods. In other words, define yourself by the stuff you have. You should have an appetite, and that appetite should never get satisfied. So your identity should always be wrapped up in stuff. Now this is a voice that we hear millions of times a year. It's kind of like the story of the couple. They got married, and early on in their marriage, they didn't have a lot of money. Unfortunately, the wife had a temptation where she wanted to spend too much money on really nice clothes. The husband was a CPA, kind of a money freak, and he paid the bills, and it was a problem. So they had a conversation about it, and he said, listen, honey, I know this is a temptation, but you must say no to it. She agreed, but the next month as he was paying bills, he noticed she would bought another expensive dress. So they had a little come-to-Jesus meeting. And the guy said to his wife, honey, I thought we agreed that we weren't going to do this. She said, no, I know, but I was at the store, and I tried to dress on, and I looked in the mirror in the fitting room, and I heard this little voice that said, wow, that looks fabulous on you. Buy it. And the father said, listen, sweetie, I thought we agreed together. You were going to say at that moment, get thee behind me, Satan. And the wife said, I did, and he did, and he said, it looks pretty good from back here, too. <laughs> Listen, you're going to hear that little voice all the time. Bread alone, bread alone, bread alone. Great theologian Miroslav Volf, in a book of his called Flourishing, about the need for faith and human life, writes, When we live by bread alone, there is never enough bread, not enough even when we make so much of it that some of it rots away. Did you hear that? When we live by bread alone, we always want more and more bread. This is the first temptation. So here's the practice during Lent and really any part of our lives that we can do to redefine ourselves. We can do without some stuff through the practice of fasting. Now some of you have heard this word before. It may sound a little weird to you. It may sound foreign to you. Some of you may have even tried it. It's actually a word in the Bible. Actually, a lot of ancient people uh, of different religions, in fact, have practiced this because they understood the value of it. To fast means I temporary, uh, temporarily refrain from consuming what I ordinarily consume. Let me say that again. I temporarily refrain from consuming what I ordinarily consume in order to make space for God... In order to find out what happens in my life when I'm not gratifying myself with that stuff on a regular basis. In other words, I don't really know how dependent I am on it until it is gone and I kind of shut myself off from it. Now let me say a word about here because I want you to understand what fasting is not from a biblical perspective. Fasting is not a way to get God to really, really, really give you what you really, really, really want. And there's a lot of pastors out there who kind of teach this stuff. They'll think of it almost like um, a, a human hunger strike. 
Like I really want something, but I'm afraid God might not really take me seriously. So I'm going to fast to say, God, please, please, please. I want to say this to you. God is not that kind of being. Fasting is also not the same thing as dieting. There is no how to look good naked fast in the Bible. <laughs> regardless of what people try to sell you. Dieting can be a great thing, but fasting is not about trying to get my body to look better. When I'm fast, I'm dealing with my life as somebody with a great big appetite. See, when you came into this world, you and I, we were a bundle of appetite. It's almost, really and truly, it's almost all we are at the beginning. All we do is eat, sleep, and mess up diapers. That's what we do, right? That's why kids love a character from Sesame Street, always have and always will. You know who this is? Right. You know who else this is? Me and you. Do you know his philosophy in life? See cookie, want cookie, eat cookie. Friends, there are really smart people who stay up way late at night trying to convince you that you are nothing more than a cookie monster. What they're offering is just a wider, more expensive version of Oreos and Chip Ahoy's. This is one of the new claims, really. It's really not new, but it's becoming very prominent in a lot of major universities. The teaching that the universe is really just a machine and you're a bundle of appetites, so just try to satisfy them without hurting anybody else. And really, that's the essence of life. That's what it's all about. And Jesus comes along and says, whoa, no. You are an unceasing spiritual being. You are a glorious moral agent. And part of the nobility of you is that you do not have to be captive to every appetite you have. You were not made to gratify every single one of them. In fact, it is not a tragedy if you go through life and you find meaning and goodness and love without them. And here's what happens when I fast, I teach my body, it is possible to have an unsatisfied appetite and still th survive. And one day, it may be possible to have that unsatisfied appetite and actually thrive. So here's what you could do. You might try fasting from food. And if you've never done that before, listen, friends, don't go on this crazy fast where you don't eat any food for like weeks, okay? Maybe just one meal. Like maybe skip dinner till the next morning. This is as embarrassing as it can be, but I've been teaching as a pastor about 30 years, and it just occurred to me this week, Robbie said it, and it never had occurred to me, and I wasn't about to admit it in the meeting, but he talked about breakfast, and he talked about breakfast being the breaking of the fast. And I was like, I never even thought about that. That's what breakfast means. It's breaking the fast. If you're wondering what kind of pastor you have here, you know now. Not one that knows very much, okay? Maybe you want to fast from arrogance a little bit. I don't know. Whatever. Maybe you want to make it a 24-hour fast. And then you'll find out a little bit more about what role food plays in your life. You might try fasting from food. Listen, you may want to fast from shopping. Maybe just spending is kind of what has its clutches. Kind of, kind of put them into you and they're holding on to you. And you might want to learn, how can I thrive without gratifying 
the need to buy something else. Maybe you need to hand your debit card or your credit card over to your spouse or your friend or the church for the next 40 days. You know what? Maybe it's an electronic fast and now you're going to start shaking, okay? There are people who work hard to think about ways. Listen, do you realize it? They're working hard to get you attached to this. There's a group of people one day sitting around a table and someone had this tremendous idea. They said, listen, when people get text, we ought to have this thing go, and somebody went, that's it. That's it. How many of you noticed the buzz? Sure. God didn't make this thing to buzz. There's a reason behind it. When that text comes in, your mind thinks, "Uh uh-oh, I might be missing out on something. I might be in trouble. I better stop doing whatever I'm doing with this person, and I better check that. Here's the thing. People are getting buzzed all the time, and not the way you're thinking, okay? Do you know that the average person now looks at this device, your device, my device, 150 times a day? What would life be like if I trained myself to just turn my mind toward God even half that time? So here's the first temptation, to believe you are what you have and the first practice is do without through fasting. The the temptation continues. The devil then leads him, Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the idea here kind of is that Jesus uh, is being told, listen, you could have it all. You could have the most impressive resume that anyone's ever had. You could have amazing power. You could use them to do what no one has ever done before you. And the second temptation here is you are what you do. Now, some of you will really resonate with this. Worship your work. Sacrifice your life, your heart, your soul, your family on the altar of achievement. The first temptation, you are what you have. The second temptation, you are what you do. Maybe more so in America than any place on earth we understand this. So the practice here, we'll just kind of move along quickly. During this season of life, and really any season of life, is to do less through the practice of Sabbath. Now in the Bible, when we do without, we call it fasting. But when we do less, less work, less stuff, it's called Sabbath. It's just a regular period of time when you're not working. You're not being important. You're not carrying the world on your shoulders. You're just alive, kind of like a little child. You're just enjoying God and enjoying life and enjoying his goodness. And you're just saying no. Many of you know the New Yorker magazine is known for their great cartoons. It's pretty significant that one of the most famous cartoons in the history of the New Yorker magazine is this one. It's a businessman who's on his phone and he's talking and he's saying, no, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? It's interesting, when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes into the wilderness driven by the Spirit. 
And for 40 days, listen, Jesus doesn't give a talk. He doesn't draw a crowd. He doesn't recruit a team. He doesn't train a disciple. He doesn't write a book. He doesn't heal a disease. He does squat. Nothing. Because nothing is really important to do for people who do a lot. So maybe the practice here for you during this season is Sabbath. Have a day where you don't do anything really significant or important where you just be with God. It's interesting, my family was out of town for New Year's and we did a lot of walking where we were. And I began to notice after a couple of days that everywhere we went, I kept ending up like several yards ahead of the rest of the group. And I kept trying to turn around and wait on them to catch up with me. I did this for like two days. Finally, as we were walking one day, I stopped and I turned and I waited on the group. And I must have had this really impatient look on my face because Robin said to me, she said, you know, if you're the one always stopping to wait on the group, it could be that you're walking too fast and everyone else is walking at just the right pace. You didn't know my wife was that smart, did you? Yeah, she is. She has a keen sense of observation. Here's the thing. If you want to walk with Jesus... You can't keep walking ahead of him. If you want to follow Jesus, you need, actually maybe you need to stay just a little bit behind him. Jesus goes off into the wilderness with his father and he does nothing. He goes into a dark and quiet place at times. He does nothing. The Bible says he goes off to a mountaintop where it's beautiful and he does nothing. He goes into a garden When life gets really, really difficult and the pressure is so great and he does nothing. Maybe your practice during the Lenten season is to do less. We call it Sabbath. Last one and we'll close. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time. Now this temptation is, you know, Jesus, you could do something spectacular. And everybody would go, wow. Like, you could make sure that everybody bows down and says, wow. Everybody could approve of you and applaud you. And this third temptation, and this is huge, is you are what people think of you. Now, friends, this is the voice of our world. You are what you have, and you are what you do, and you are certainly what people think you are. If I can get people to approve of me, that's the ticket. Because here's the deal. If someone were to disapprove of me, how terrible would that be? How terrible it might be if somebody didn't think as highly of me as I think they ought to think of me. You want to talk about an addiction in our society? Here it is. I want you to think about Jesus now for just a moment. I want you to really think about this. The sinless son of God is what we say. But when you look at his life, 
Who in his life did Jesus not disappoint? It's amazing. The crowds come to him and say, we want you to be our king because then you could defeat all of our enemies. And Jesus says, no, I got to disappoint you. The religious leaders come and they say, listen, you're not living up to our standards of righteousness. You're kind of hanging out with the wrong people. You need to stop doing that. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to have to disappoint you. His mom and his own flesh and blood, his brothers come and say, listen, Jesus, you're acting a little crazy. You need to come home and stop all this insanity. And Jesus says, uh, no, I might have to disappoint you. Herod comes to him and says, listen, do this miraculous sign so I can be wild. And Jesus says, no, Herod, I'm going to have to disappoint you. James and John say, let us sit on your right hand and one on your left. And Jesus says, "Mm, no, I'm going to have to disappoint you. It seems like Jesus just disappointed everybody. Except for his father. And part of saying no, friends is that someone is going to be disappointed. I want some of you to listen to me. Some of you need to start saying no because the only reason you're saying yes is because someone won't be disappointed in you. It is ruining your life. And the practice around this one during this season is this. Do without human approval through the practice of solitude. Now follow me here because this is a little tricky. The practice of solitude, of being alone, away from life and other people, has enormous benefits. One of the primary benefits is to realize that there is one being in the universe that you need to try and please, and that one being is God. Being alone helps you recalibrate your life to realize that, A, you're not the center of the universe, But it also helps remind you that other people are not the center of the universe and you don't have to have their approval to live. So what I encourage you to do is sometime during this season, take time to pull away and just be with God and be in his presence and remind yourselves, listen, I can say no. And then when you come back from that time of solitude, actually say no to someone, listen, that you ought to say no to, and then feel good about it. And when someone's not happy with you, and when someone gets a little frustrated with you, listen, don't change your mind and say, oh, okay, okay, I'll say yes. No. The answer is no. Don't try to make sure your reputation is built up inside of them because you're not what you have and you're not what you do. Listen, and you are definitely not what people think you are. So let me tell you who you are. You are who we sang about earlier. We are no longer slaves. We are children of God. Jesus had to say no his entire life. And it wasn't just at the beginning because if you think about it, Over and over, right up until the very end of his life, Jesus was hanging on a cross, and the crowd is crying out, Listen, you saved others. Save yourselves. Come down from the cross. But Jesus, in his last great act, says no. And his great no becomes the resounding yes for God. The cross, listen, which looks like the triumph of no, actually becomes God's yes of forgiveness and grace and life and love to every human being. Next week we'll talk about that yes. 
It's one of the great statements about yes in the Bible. But this week, we start with no. No. 